please uh, continue those conversations after lunch. We, we have lunch after the service out in the courtyard. You are welcome to join us. Please, uh, please join us for lunch. But uh, before we eat lunch, we're going to spend some time feasting on God's Word. We're going to spend some time uh, looking at this passage in Acts chapter 13. If you uh, have your Bibles there, please uh, keep them open. I'm going to be reading from uh, the ESV. So if you're, you know, pulling up your Bible on your phone, you can you can switch over to the ESV. There's a couple of Bibles on the back table if you want to follow along in a physical Bible with pages and whatnot. I've, I was thinking on the way in this morning, I was thinking... How do you how do how do I respond when opportunities arise? You know, uh, you know. Oftentimes we we say we value things, we say we we like things, uh, we look forward to certain things happening, but then when the opportunity arrives to actually take hold of that, we kind of end up a little bit indifferent. I, I'm thinking of things like I, I like music, so sometimes when my favourite bands come to Brisbane, they don't often come to Toowoomba, but they might come to Brisbane. And I think, oh, great, they're coming. I can go and I can see them perform. I can hear the music. I can be involved. And then you look at the dates and go, oh, it's, a, it's not a convenient date or um, it's an expensive ticket price. Oh, I've got to drive down there. I've got to drive back. And then it kind of exposes that I'm not really that interested in, in taking up the opportunity. And while I said I was, my, actual, my actions kind of reveal that when the opportunity arises... I'm not all that interested. And, but it's not just things like music. I think of things like opportunities when I, I think, oh, I wish I could share the gospel more. But then when opportunities arise for me to actually have those gospel conversations, do I take advantage of those opportunities? <laughs> not as often as I would like. I think it exposes something in me of my, <laughs> of my actual commitment to the cause. Now, I probably, probably got, pretty real pretty quick because you probably identify with that you probably sympathize with that but the passage that we're looking at this morning reveals to us um, what happens when people are presented with gospel opportunities whether it be sharing the gospel or even receiving the gospel so we're going to we're going to go through this passage in acts 13 and we're going to see how people respond to these opportunities there's kind of three big sections in the text. We'll just deal with them one after the other. The, the first one is the, the, the section that sets the scene. If you were, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you would have, you would remember where we're up to in the story with, I'll give you a quick catch up, you know, like that 30 seconds of a TV episode that tells you what happened before. Jesus came to the earth. He brought the good news. He saved a people for himself, he did the work, and he sends out his disciples to take that news out to people. You can receive the salvation. You can have what Jesus has done. So he sends out his missionaries out into the world, and he says to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth." And you know what? Things are happening just like Jesus said. The gospel is going forth. The Holy Spirit is going forth. People are responding, hearing about Jesus, repenting, putting their faith in the Son of God. So we've done Jerusalem. Check. We've done Judea. Check. 
We've done Samaria. Check. What about the ends of the earth? Well, that's the part of the story that we're in right now. Paul and Barnabas and a few other blokes have been sent out from the church in Antioch to start making some headway on this ends of the earth stuff, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. They've been sent out. And we heard about last week about their time on the island of Cyprus, where they did a bit of a preaching tour, which ended with the conversion of the Roman proconsul. And now our story picks up today uh, with them sailing to the mainland of what is modern-day Turkey. So in the first section of our passage, we saw that they travelled to a town called Perga. You can see Perga over here. Uh, Cyprus is just off the bottom of the screen. They've come from Antioch. They've sailed across to Cyprus. They went around the southern side of Cyprus. And then they've head up and they've gone into Perga. That's where our story is picking up, where they sailed across to Perga. And this is, and this is modern day Turkey up here. But at this time, it's a bunch of different Roman provinces with various different names. So they've, they've come into Perga near the coast. And while they were there, a fellow who'd been traveling with them called John Mark decides, I've had enough. I'm going home. We're not told why he's had it, why he decides to go home, but it's kind of just brushed over. You know, John Mark left and went home. And spoiler alert: later on, we find out that there was it was enough of a problem that John and uh, Paul and Barnabas butt heads about it. Um, but but that's a story for another time. Here, all we're given is John Mark went home. Then we hear that um, these guys they set out to go. Um, to Antioch, and they, they push on, they trek over the mountains, there's heaps of mountains in here, they trek over the mountains to the, to the, to the, um, the high plains, and they go to a town called Antioch. Now, if you have been listening, or even looking at the map, you will see that there are two Antiochs. So even though they were sent out of Antioch, that's not the Antioch that they've just arrived at. We've got Antioch over here in, um, which is actually still kind of called Antioch even today. But then we've got this other Antioch over here which we call Pisidian Antioch over to the, um, to the, to the northeast. And that's the place that we're talking about them arriving at today in this region of Galatia. And spoiler alert, this is the area where, where Paul sends his letter when he sends his letter to the Galatians. It's to this, to this zone. So they've, they've trekked this 160 kilometers to Antioch over the mountains and their first port of call is let's go to the synagogue. The Jewish missionaries, Jewish missionaries with a Jewish mission about a Jewish Messiah. I'll get my words right. So it makes perfect sense where they're going to go. They're going to go to the place where the local Jews meet. And it's just like, it's just like a Sunday service except it's on Saturday. And they only have half the Bible. So they go in, there's a couple Bible readings, one from um, the law, uh, which is the first five books of the Bible, and there's one from the other part of the Old Testament. And, and Paul is presented with an opportunity to share the gospel. I'm just going to read from verse 14, um, halfway through, where it says, And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up 
and after motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. It's a pretty standard church service, like we've had this morning, some Bible readings, um, some prayers, and now they're coming to the sermon part. And they've got this group of travelling missionaries, travelling Jews, who have visited their church this, that morning. And they said, hey guys, um, do you have something to share with us? Uh, they might have been hoping they brought news or, or other words of encouragement, uh, or that they just had something to share from the scriptures. And so Paul grabs hold of this gospel opportunity with two hands. He takes to the pulpit and he starts preaching at them. And that brings us to the second section, main section of our passage, the sermon. It, it makes up the bulk of this, this section. It's a summary of Paul's preaching in the synagogue on that day. And he's in a synagogue preaching to Jews and people who are on the fringes of Judaism, people who, uh, who are on the way in. You, know, you might say they were undergoing membership classes or baptism classes if it was today. They're, they're people on the fringes of that group of believers um, and, the, and, the, and the main body of believers themselves. So this thoroughly Jewish congregation, thoroughly Jewish setting, and Paul gets up and preaches a sermon directed to them in their time and place. If I was to get up and preach this same sermon at a carol service, evangelistic carol service, it would probably just fall on deaf ears because it's not two people in 2019 um, at a carol service in Australia. This sermon is, is directed at these people um, to address their needs and their understandings and their um, desires and hopes. So this sermon contextually addresses their hopes and expectations and it brings to them an answer that they probably weren't expecting, an opportunity that they probably weren't expecting. In the typical style that we've seen throughout Acts, with Peter's sermon and Stephen's sermon, uh, Act, Paul starts with a brief history of the overview of Israel, brief history of the people of God. He wants to set the stage for the arrival of Jesus by going back and let's let's recap some history. But it, Paul doesn't just say this happened and then this happened and then this happened. He sets it as the work of God with God's people. God did it. God did this. God did this. So let's read that that section from verse seventeen, and keep your eyes peeled to see how Paul uh, communicates what God is doing. He says, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me is one coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. 
So, so Paul sets this retelling of the history of Israel as the acts of God with his chosen people. And it was all leading up to something. The story kind of hits a bit of a high point with the arrival of David, the man after God's heart, the greatest king that Israel had ever known, a warrior king who was loved by God, a man after God's own heart who would do all his will. And that's the kind of king that you want, especially as an Israelite, a king who is like God, who wants what God wants, who's going to discharge his duties to bring God's goodness and justice into reality under his reign. And and up to this point in history, in this reading, David was the best king they'd ever had. God's people had ever had. God promised that David's royal lineage would never fail. And God entered into a covenant with David. We we get a little snapshot of it in in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says, And your house, speaking to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So this is the promise made to David, but this isn't the reality of those people in Antioch that day. They're not under the reign of this good king in the the promised land. The line of David is, is practically gone. There's no real evidence of it. They were minorities in a foreign land looking under an anointed king. And so Paul is addressing their expectations for this anointed king, that God will fulfill his promises, that he will do what he said he was going to do. Paul's addressing their waiting for restoration. And then Paul drops that gospel bomb. He says, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus, as he promised. Jesus is the promised one from David's lineage. He is saviour. And not only that, he sent John the Baptist to prepare the way. You know, John was a great bloke and everything. He was a mighty prophet. They probably heard about John the Baptist and his ministry. But he was merely the opening act for the main event, which was the arrival of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the promised one brought by God to Israel. And Paul wants to tell them some of these details about this promised one, of the salvation that he brings. If you want to read with me in verse from verse 26. Brothers... Sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or nor understand the utterance of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. So so, so Paul gives them these cliff notes of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Jesus was uh, a good man who was misunderstood by the religious leaders. He was unjustly condemned to death and killed, but then he rose from the dead. The rulers of Jerusalem didn't understand their own scriptures. They didn't understand what Jesus had to say was the fulfillment of those scriptures. And they actually fulfilled the scriptures by condemning him to death. If you don't understand the scriptures about a coming Messiah, you're going to miss the Messiah when he turns up. And that's exactly what happened. They didn't know what they were looking for. So they killed Jesus. But this didn't thwart God's plan. He wasn't put out by this. You can't 
You can't undo God's plans. You can't, um, you can't put them to pieces. God raised him from the dead. It was all part of his plan. He is the death-conquering promised one, Jesus Christ. He's the one who went and chilled out with his mates after he'd been put to death. This is the kind of promised one that you want. You can try and kill him if you like, but in three days, he's back again. Death holds no sway over him. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I've grown up uh, playing video games uh, as a kid and, and even as an adult. And it's, it's this cycle of whenever you die, you always get another go. You always have another turn. There's always another life. And even if you run out of lives, you can just go back and start the whole thing over again. You always get another turn. And, and I've grown up watching TV shows where characters might get killed off, but then a few episodes later, it turns out that they're brought back from the dead or they weren't really dead at all. And, and death doesn't really have any meaning in this. It's not permanent. It just, just have another go. But, Friends, that's not how reality is. That's not what it's like in the real world. Death is not able to be triumphed. Death doesn't work like that. Dead is dead. Because we're often removed from the reality of death, we don't experience it so readily in our lives. For many of us, funerals are a rare occurrence. They don't don't happen very often. And when deaths do occur in our families, often they're actually kind of separated from us in the in the hospital or the hospice or, or, or the aged care facility. It's taken away from us and it happens out there. But death is permanent. Death is nasty. Death is that boss that you can't defeat. You can't have another do-over and another go and another go. It stands as the unbeatable master who one day gets all of us. It got several of my grandparents through cancer. It got my grandmother through a stroke. Death has claimed my unborn siblings. It took Laura's grandmother, uncles and an aunt. Death has snatched our friend Peter away from us. Death took Sarah Prebenau's mother, a grandmother, just a few weeks ago. Death stalks us. Death is ready to pounce. And death is doesn't care about you. That you get one chance at life and if it gets messed up by yourself or by external circumstances outside your control, death doesn't care. It takes you anyway. Friends, the death is the ever-present fate waiting for us. And it's the ever-present fate waiting for the Jews at Antioch. And they probably knew it better than us because they didn't have antibiotics and, and, and hospitals and and health insurance, and workplace health and safety policies. They face death, we face death, but Paul turns up and he says, hey, let me tell you about a guy who just comes back to life when you kill him. Death can't hold him. Death holds no sway over Jesus. The combined might of the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman Empire can't hold this guy down. He's from the living God. He's from the line of the King of David. He's the God that the scriptures promised. 
Jesus comes as this, as this fulfillment of God's promises and, and God made promises to the fathers of Israel. And so Paul says, well, let's have a look at some of those promises that are fulfilled. If you want to, if you want to have a look in verse uh, 32, he says, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us as their children by raising Jesus. So also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son today. I have begotten you. So, so Paul is an emissary of the good news. He's bringing that good news that the promises to your fathers have been fulfilled. He's taken that gospel opportunity to share with them about the opportunity they now have to receive those promises, even in their lifetime. And how are those promises fulfilled? By Jesus, the raising of Jesus. This is the sign. And and Paul goes through and gives a few examples from the scripture about how Jesus was promised and how he fulfilled the promises. He references Psalm 2, which refers to the Messianic king. Jesus is descended from the line of David and he can lay claim to this Messianic psalm. And then Paul makes a reference to uh, Isaiah 55, where the promised Davidic king is given God's love and is made a leader of God's people. And, and lastly, he references the prophecy in Psalm 16 that God would not let his Holy One see corruption. Corruption has to do with dying, experiencing death, distance from God, and, and, and quite possibly the decay of the body. It's corrupted. So the psalm predicts that the promised one would not be left in the grave, nor be divided from God in death. And Paul links this right to Jesus. This guy is this guy. His resurrection from death is the fulfillment of these verses. God didn't abandon Jesus to the grave or leave him there, but instead he rose Jesus from the death. And, and in case, you know, he's answering an objection, in case somebody would say, oh, well, this, this verse in this psalm is just about David, King David. It's not about Jesus. Well, in verse 36, what does Paul say? He says, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and he was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So, so David did what God wanted him to do, he served God's purposes, but then he died. He died and he's gone. His body saw corruption. But not Jesus. Jesus couldn't stay dead. So what does this mean for Paul's hearers? Why is this good news that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, it means that he brings forgiveness of sins. There is freedom, freedom from sins, freedom from death, and freedom from the burdens of the law that were laid on them. Freedom from everything that the law failed to deliver. It says in verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. They lived under the, the, the burden of a system of law that could not permanently deal with their problems. The law of the Torah can't deal with the problem of, of high-handed, deliberate sinning. The Torah is geographically confined to, to Jerusalem for the completion of their, of their religious observances. It's a law that requires continual sacrifice to make people clean in God's eyes. It's a law that can't change the heart. And here Paul comes in and says, you can be free. 
You can be free from sin, free from condemnation, free from the law's limitations. Imagine that. A people who have, for hundreds of years, tried to make themselves clean in God's eyes by following the heavy burdens that they've been told. But Jesus brings forgiveness of sins and right standing with God through believing in him. He provides freedom for their souls. Paul holds out to these folks an opportunity for freedom through Jesus Christ. This is good news. This is gospel. Their ever, their long-awaited anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, has arrived triumphing over death and bringing the forgiveness of sins. And that forgiveness, that freedom, that burden lifting is here for you in this room today. Jesus' death and his blessings cover time. They're not confined to the times of the Bible. They cover all of history. All those who want forgiveness, who want freedom, can have it through Jesus Christ even today. Even today. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what burdens you've brought in here with you this morning. But I'm pretty sure that you have some burdens. Perhaps you've come in here today thinking that you're not worthy. You know objectively that Jesus loves you, but you come in here feeling like he doesn't. That you're not worth his effort and his love and his time. I'm too far gone. Maybe you are feeling the crushing weight of your sin this week. From that sin that you just can't seem to get away from. Maybe you're feeling your regret this morning. I should have done better. I should have been better. I should have done more. Perhaps you're buckling under the burden of trying to live a life pleasing to God, to do what he says at every turn, but finding that at every second turn, you're failing him. Perhaps you are thirsty. Perhaps your soul is parched as you wait for something or someone who will fulfill your greatest and deepest longings. Brothers and sisters, let it be known to you that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. You can have freedom. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed from by any other method. If you believe in him, you will receive freedom, forgiveness, and life. You know, he's not going to magically take away your suffering. He's not going to magically fix all your problems. He won't always give you what you think you want. But he will cleanse you of all your guilt. He will forgive your smallest and your greatest sins. He will free you from enslavement to sin and burdens of law. He'll make you right in God's eyes. He will give you resurrection's life so that even if you taste death, death will not be your permanent home. So this is great and good news, but it comes with a warning. It's easy to say, it's easy to say, oh, I would believe it if somebody would prove to me that it's true. Somebody would show me that it's true. And, and, and Paul says, with reference to Habakkuk, and, and I say to you now, somebody has come to tell you about it. I'm here today to tell you about it. And there was guys that came before me, and before them, and before them, and the reformers. 
and the fathers of the church and the apostles and Jesus Christ himself who came to this earth and had his words recorded so that you could hear it. You don't need somebody else to turn up to tell you about it. Even if somebody came back from the dead, you wouldn't believe it unless the Holy Spirit is at work in you to receive this good news that has been delivered to you. Paul references Habakkuk and says, look, there were prophets that turned up and told them about what was coming. And they didn't believe. They didn't believe Jeremiah. They didn't believe Habakkuk. They didn't believe the the other prophets. And look what happened to them. They were exiled from the land. And it's it's a warning to say that I'm here to tell you about the good news now, about how you can be saved, and you need to listen to it. And that's a reminder to us as well, that we have the good news and we need to listen to it. It's not some flippant thing. It is the very words of God given to us and we need to deal with them seriously. Jesus is our way out. If you don't listen to the message, it will be your downfall. It will be like walking around in a building that is on fire and the fire alarm is blaring saying, get out of the building, it's burning down. The gospel message is the good news that you can be saved from the burning building, that it's blaring to you right now in this room. What kind of person hears that message and then says, oh, I'll I'll, I'll deal with it myself, thanks. So, try and put out the fires, we'll just see how it turns out in the long run. You know, it'll it'll, it'll, um, work out in the long run. But Jesus provides our escape. He's not merely a fire escape, let me escape from the burning building, but he's our fire retardant. (laughs) He cannot be destroyed. And when this world has been destroyed by fire, he will remake this world for his people whom he has saved. In the last section of our passage, we come to the responses. There's kind of three main responses that we see in the end of this passage about about how people... uh, hear the message and what they do afterwards. Paul has preached the good news to people and they respond in different ways, ways that are, that are characteristic of even our own time when we share the gospel with people. Let's, let's have a look at how people react. First, there's intrigue and uncertainty. The people have a piqued curiosity. You've given us this news. And in verse 42, it says, they went out and the people begged that these things might be told to them next Sabbath. So they're interested. They want to know more but they're not ready to commit yet. They will come back next week and they'll hear more. And and in this case, they actually bring their friends to hear more as well. But then there are people who hear the message and, and respond to it positively, receive it, accept it. In verse 43, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So these second group of respondents, they've heard enough to know that they needed this salvation. It was shared with them by witnesses. It was shown to them in the scriptures how these things were true. And they realized their own need. They became Christians. And becoming a Christian is not turning away from Judaism that they were already living in. It is the fulfillment of Judaism. It's the next step for the Jewish faith. So these people step forward into into Christ they come into the fulfillment of, of Judaism, which is Jesus Christ. But then there was those who, they reject the message. They don't want any of it. They say, get lost. 
If you read from, they become hostile and defensive and violent. And we'll read from verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. The local religious leaders just couldn't stomach the fact that that these upstarts from out of town could draw a crowd. They, they might have already been on the fence about the message they'd received, but then when they saw that these guys were popular and that their message was being received, they just they were indignant. They were jealous. They've been servants of God in their community for years. They've worked hard to be faithful and to reach out to the community. There's a group of people in that church who were on the way to becoming fully-fledged followers of God. They've, they've been there to help people turn from idols to the living God. And now these fellows from out of town pop in and with one week they have the whole town turning up to a church service to hear what Paul and Barnabas have to say. You could understand their jealousy. I mean, you know, Steve and I have been preaching here for a few years now and if we had a a visiting preacher come in next week and the week after who just filled the place and there was conversions all over the place. We'd have a hard time kind of not being jealous of that. I, I'm not, maybe not speaking for Steve, but I know that I would have a hard time with that. I, I'd like to think that I would be loving and gracious in that circumstance and, and displaying the fruits of the Spirit, but I know my own heart, I'm, I'm not so sure. But God uses different people in different ways. God used those church leaders in that time, in that, for that period in Pisidian Antioch to faithfully lead and teach those people the scriptures. But they were a temporary placeholder. They were waiting for something and that something has now come. Their day was done and their Judaism was to pass away to give way to Christianity. They could either get on God's side and become part of God's kingdom or they could be bitter and jealous that they didn't get to start the revival. Their jealousy was more important than the hopes and the dreams that they'd been longing for. Remember what I talked at the beginning about how when the opportunity presents itself, how we act will actually show our true colours? These guys have been longing for their Messiah to turn up, and when he does, their true colours come out. They'd rather have their own puny kingdom and their own power, in their own way. So Paul and Barnabas say, okay, we gave you guys a chance. Your families were given the promise of God in history, and it's only right that you guys get first dibs on claiming these promises. But if you don't want them, we're going to take them to the Gentiles. And that's what God has told us to do. Gentiles being anybody who's not Jewish. That's a strange word, we don't use it a lot, but Gentiles being anybody who's not Jewish. And if you look in verse 46, it said, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be first spoken to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Those Jews thrust it aside. They rejected eternal life. They counted themselves as unworthy for eternal life. But that's okay, because you know what? 
Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit in Paul and Barnabas, is making ground on that promise to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus' promise is happening. His work is happening. His promises are being fulfilled. It's okay because the gospel is going to the whole world. Now, this marks a bit of a turning point in Paul's, in Paul's journey. He, he will always take the gospel to the Jews, but he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, receiving his calling from God, those who would gladly receive it. He will always give them an option of coming and receiving this, but, but we notice a tendency to turn now for Paul and to specifically be reaching out to the Gentiles throughout the rest of the book of Acts, and, and, and it's reflected in his, in his letters. And look at the response. Look at the response in verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and stirred them up with persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook the feet, the dust from their feet against them. And they went to Iconium. This follows our pattern. There will be those who, who, who are interested in the gospel message but don't know what to do with it yet. There are those who reject it, but then there are these Gentiles who receive it. And then there are these other leaders that want to reject it so much that they will push them out of town. And in the pattern of gospel going out, we see this pattern time and time again. There will be persecution that comes against the proclamation of God's gospel. But there's the good news that when the gospel is proclaimed, people will hear it and they will respond. God has his chosen people and when the gospel comes to them and they receive the gospel, they enter into eternal life. We don't need to fear as we take out the gospel that it's up to us to convince people or up to us to use the right methods, use the right words, I mean, we try to do that, but in reality, God has his people and he will save them, no matter what you do. And that's, that's freeing for us. God's not up in heaven with the Lamb's Book of Life going, oh, Johnny didn't make it because Samuel forgot to use the right words. God has his people and he will save them. All that were destined for eternal life believed. It says it in this passage. And we can have faith that when the gospel goes out, when we take it into the world, there'll be people who reject us. There'll be people who persecute us. There'll be people who are kind of on the fence, maybe a bit indifferent. But the good news is that the gospel will go forth and there are those people whom God has ready and waiting to receive the gospel. So would you please take the gospel to them? They're there waiting. Please take it to them. The harvest is ripe, ready for you to go out as a worker into the field. But when we're rejected, we shake off the dust and we move on. As we, as we kind of bring all these things together, as we come to a close, where have we been? We've seen that this gospel message has come. The, the message of Jesus Christ has come in fulfillment of the promises, in fulfillment of the scriptures. He's been witnessed by men and women. They've had those messages written down. He is the saviour of all who will believe. He sets free. He'll set you free. He will give you forgiveness. 
if you would but reach for it. And he triumphs over death. Death has no sting for us because we belong to a saviour who has triumphed over death. We expect that there will be people who respond differently to the gospel. Rejection, uncertainty, but there will be those who will receive the gospel gladly. And I want to kind of finish with this question. Where, where are you in this situation? Are you somebody who hears the gospel message and goes, oh, I can't believe that I have to sit here and listen to this rubbish again. Are you the, are you the person who is indifferent going, oh, it's religious stuff, I'm not sure about it. Maybe, but what about, what about all the other people who believe different stuff? What about them? We sit on the fence and we go, oh, not sure. I encourage you today that I, I bring this message to you in a long line of messages to repent and believe Jesus Christ for eternal life, for the forgiveness of sins, for freedom from the death and corruption which plague this world. And friends, if you have received that message, would you please be like Paul and take hold of those gospel opportunities and take the gospel out into the world so that Jesus commission. It's a Jesus prophecy. So Jesus' words would be filled that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promised one, Jesus Christ, who comes to take away the sins of the world. We thank you for his shed blood, which cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And Lord, we thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you have enabled us to receive that. Lord, I pray for those in this room who are rejecting the gospel. I pray for those who are on the fence and and not sure. I ask, Lord, that you would work in them by your Holy Spirit so they might see the beauty of our Saviour and turn to him and to reach out for him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work that you are doing in saving so many people across the world, that you are building your church, that you are building your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, that nobody can prevail against it, whether it's local religious leaders, local, local people with uh, clout in the, in the political field. We thank you, Lord, that, the, that empires, whether it be the Roman Empire or any other empire on earth, cannot stand against your anointed one and his people. Heavenly Father, we entrust ourselves to you to keep us to keep us to the end, to help us to stand firm as persecution comes against us. And Lord, enable us to be willing messengers who, who take this message out into the world. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.